0: Welcome to World War I Centennial News. It's about World War I news 100 years ago this week, and it's about World War I news now. News and updates about the centennial and the commemoration. Today is August 16, 2017, and we have a big lineup today with six guests joining us. You're going to hear from R.G. Head, former Air Force General, fighter pilot, author, and historian. The storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog. Ann Taylor and Ruth Edmondson Johnson from the Hundred Cities, Hundred Memorials Project in Jackson, California. Jeff Jakeman, professor emeritus from Auburn University. And Susan Werby, independent scholar and artist. World War One Centennial News is brought to you by the U.S. World War One Centennial Commission and the Pritzker Military Museum and Library. I'm Teo Mayer the Chief Technologist for the Commission, and your host. The following section comes from the headlines and the pages of the official bulletin. The government's Daily War Gazette published by George Creel, President Wilson's propaganda chief. We're republishing the daily issues on the centennial anniversary of the original published dates at one ccorg bulletin. So for those of you who'd like to follow the events of a hundred years ago in the words and headlines of the Times as presented by the U.S. government, we offer a unique and powerful way to follow the war that changed the world. We have the link in the podcast notes. So let's jump into our Wayback Machine and take a look at one of the themes that pervaded the official bulletin a hundred years ago this week. It's the week of August 12, 1917. Starting on the Monday of this week, the official bulletin launches a new series of articles, 30 lessons, issued by the War Department over five weeks, written for the benefit of men selected for service. The lessons are informal in tone and designed to define the image and, more importantly, the self-image of the American soldier. It's philosophy, attitude, behavior, morality, personal hygiene, and more. It's a manifesto for what it means to be an American soldier. Listen to a few random excerpts taken from the first six lessons published this week. From Lesson 1, Your Post of Honor. Quote, Other things being equal, an army made up of self-reliant, thinking men has a great advantage over a merely machine-like army, and this is especially true in this present-day warfare. Quote, the American soldier fights fairly and treats even the enemy with as much humanity as his own conduct will permit. As for slaughtering and enslaving the civilian population of captured territories, attacking prisoners, or assaulting women, American soldiers would as little commit such crimes in times of war as in times of peace. Quote, America has fought always and everywhere in defense of principles and rights, never merely for territory and power. And from Lesson 2, Making Good as a Soldier, Quote, Loyalty, obedience, and physical fitness are the three basic qualities essential to the making of a real soldier. From Lesson 3, Soldierly Qualities, quote, Intelligence, cleanliness, cheerfulness, confidence, spirit, tenacity, strength, and self-reliance are the qualities of an American soldier. Lesson 4, Getting Ready for Camp Don't take a last fling. It may land you in the hospital, and at best, it will probably bring you to camp in an unfit condition to take up your duties. From Lesson 5, First Day at Camp As the men in the National Army, which must be ready in record-breaking time, your training will be more strenuous than that of soldiers in peace. You will find that there is plenty of hard work ahead of you. The average energetic young American will be glad of it. And Lesson 6, Cleanliness in Camp. The Good Soldier is almost fussy in the care of his person his clothing his bedding and his other belongings personal cleanliness includes using only your own linen toilet articles cup and mess kit and so go the first 6 of 31 page lessons defining what it means to be an american soldier for tens of thousands of young men many of whom have never been away from home One of our listeners, who joined us during the live recording of this episode, commented that these lessons were not only new for the recent draftees, but new for the Army at large. Bill Benton from California mentioned that, until now, the U.S. military consisted of professional career soldiers whose reputation was considered, shall we say, a bit rough— and so this rebranding of what it means to be an American soldier is a seed change in the worldview and self-image of our military and another key example of the war that changed the world. To learn how you can join the live recording of the podcast, go to one ccorg cn. That's Charlie Nancy, all lowercase. Moving to our War in the Sky segment, we're joined today by R.G. Head, retired Air Force Brigadier General, fighter pilot, military historian, and author. R.G. offers us a retrospective of the past six months in the Great War in the Sky and a preview of what's going to happen over the coming months. Welcome, R.G. Good morning. R.G., a lot has happened over the past months in the skies over Europe. How would you characterize it in overview? The
1: Big changes uh, occurred in the air forces of both sides. Uh, 1917 is characterized by great growth in the number of squadrons in the French, British, and uh, German air forces. The numbers of aircraft increased from the initial fighter battles in 1916. Fighter wings were formed, uh, putting several squadrons together, as many as four. The biggest battle was called Bloody April. And to give an example of the size, the British lost 245 aircraft in April alone to the German 66. Manfred von Richthofen got 20 victories all by himself. Bulky's effect uh, was really felt in 1917. Uh, Six weeks after Volki was killed in in the mid-air collision, the emperor named the squadron Volki, and so JASTA II became JASTA Volki, and Manfred von Richthofen, instead of being given command of that squadron, was transferred on uh, January 11th to command the 11th JASTA, and the whole German air service took such Uh, morale from Bulky's performance that uh, they really dominated the first half of 1917 uh, until the British were able to introduce uh, better airplanes and the British in 1917 introduced a rigorous pilot training system that rectified many of their uh, faults uh, earlier in the war. But the three aircraft that were introduced in 1917. Uh, On the Allied side were the British Camel, the British SE 5, and the French SPAD 7 and 13. And these aircraft uh, made a big difference in the quality of the Allied Air Forces. Of course, the biggest event worldwide was the April 6th US declaration of war. And by this time, uh, the US finally began to put more money and resources into training air forces. In 1914, the U.S. had only 11 aircraft. Air service requested a million dollars appropriation that was reduced to 300,000 by the Secretary of War and the Congress reduced it to 250,000. 1915, we had one squadron of aircraft with 77 officers and still only 300,000 appropriated. By 1916, we doubled to two squadrons, still with only 65 officers, but the budget zoomed up to $13 million, and in 1918, at the conclusion of the war, we will have 45 squadrons with almost a 1,000 pilots and huge uh, resources.
0: So, RG, we've reported a lot about the U.S. and Allied belief that overwhelming U.S. air power could be the linchpin in hastening the end of this terrible war. How did that play out over the coming months?
1: That was one of the great disappointments of all of the Allies, including the United States. It turned out that by the end of 1918, after 18 months of being at war, the U.S. did not field a single aircraft made in the United States for the air campaign. We did produce nearly 20,000 Liberty engines, and the growth from zero to production rate to produce 20,000 is one of the American miracles, and the Liberty was used in many, many aircraft, and especially between the wars, World War One and Two. So the U.S. flew primarily French uh, aircraft and some British aircraft, but its own production did not get into the war uh, on the side of aircraft itself.
0: So you're saying that the strategy didn't work out because we couldn't pull off the manufacturing. Is that right?
1: We couldn't put the manufacturing together and we couldn't ship them overseas uh, fast enough. The U.S. timeline for moving from peacetime production to military production when there were no specifications. they had to, We had to build a whole system of research and development, production, test, evaluation, and deployment. And uh, 18 months was just not enough time to do that.
0: So just before we wrap up, I want to talk a bit about your book on Oswald Bulke, a little bit about him. And I understand it's coming out in German. How'd that happen?
1: The bulky book is selling very well. In fact, we only have 300 copies left. Uh, They're still available. It's in translation to German at this point. Many chapters are in uh, first, second, and third draft, and that should be out in the fall, and we hope to make that uh, available to readers worldwide. Thank you, R.G. Thanks for the opportunity to speak to your listeners.
0: That was R.G. Head, retired Air Force Brigadier General fighter pilot, military historian, and author. His latest book is a biography of Oswald Bolke, often referred to as the father of combat aviation. R.G. heads also the curator of a comprehensive nearly day-to-day War in the Sky timeline on the commission's website. We have links to the book, the timeline, and R.G.'s Facebook page in the podcast notes. From the War in the Sky to the War on the Water We're joined by the storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin, and Jonathan Bratton. Today, they're going to explore the Naval Reserve Act, which created an unprecedented window of opportunity for women to
2: enlist in the military. Greetings. This is Richard Rubin, storyteller, the author of The Last of the Doughboys, and back over there. And
3: this is Jonathan Bratton, historian.
2: The Naval Reserve Act of 1916 was very long and very dense and explored in minute detail all of the requirements for service in the United States Navy or Naval Reserve with one very big exception. Nowhere in there did it say that you had to be male in order to serve in the Navy. And so when in early 1917 someone pointed this out to Secretary of the Navy Josephus Daniels, Daniels, to his great credit, let it stand. And that's how it came to be that in the course of the First World War, some 11,000 women enlisted in the United States Navy. They were all given the rank yeoman, F for female, though they were popularly known as yeomanettes. Uh, kind of an unfortunate name. Sounds like something you'd buy at the movie theater concession stand. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a very, very big Deal at the time. Women had never before served in uniform with rank in any branch of the American Armed Forces. Uh, Jonathan is looking dubious, but I'm going to just push right on through that and tell you that before the war ended, some 11,000 women had enlisted in the Navy as yeomanettes. And though only five, that is, the number five, not 5,000, only five of them went overseas during the war. They were all discharged afterward with their rank, and many of them were among the founders of American Legion posts, the very first American Legion posts in the country. Uh, So this was quite an advancement for women, and I just want to say that Of all the people to be a civil rights pioneer, Josephus Daniels, (laughs) not what you would expect. He was uh, a newspaper publisher from, I believe, North Carolina, who had been an early supporter of Wilson's uh, during his 1912 presidential run and had gotten that appointment as payback. Uh, Daniels um, let that... uh, gender desegregation stand but still insisted on very rigid segregation along racial lines in the United States Navy to the point where, as I write in the last of the Doughboys, um, seamen who were suspected of being at least partially African-American were assigned jobs below decks where they would never come into contact with seamen of European ancestry. And so Not exactly a progressive and yet responsible for one of the most progressive acts of the early 20th century, I would say. And because
3: uh, the uh, Marine Corps, even though it likes to pretend that it doesn't fall under the Navy, but because that it did and still does fall under the branch of the Navy... The Marine Corps of all branches also allowed women to serve in uniform. Now, we're only talking a couple hundred. Uh, they were all serving uh, in similar capacities. Uh, so clerical capacity. Correct. Yeah. And they were served down in Washington, D.C. at the Naval Yard. Mm-hmm. And what were, while, they,
2: what were they called? Did they, did they have a nickname?
3: They, I believe, fell under the same um, umbrella as Yeomanette because they served as Yeoman, also F., um, mm-hmm. In the navy, the this is er- news
2: being broken by the way, right here on <laughs> SNH Storyteller and Historian.
3: And lest uh, lest I betray my my own branch, the army, uh, the army did finally in in 1906 begin allowing women into the army nurse corps even though that women had been serving as nurses for the army since the time of the Civil War, usually falling under uh, some other different type of organization. But it wasn't until after the Spanish-American War that women were finally allowed to serve in the Army Nurse Corps. But
2: they were not assigned rank. Is that correct?
3: That I'm not sure of.
2: It's my understanding that Yeomanets were the first uh, military personnel who were assigned official rank and were issued uh, official uniforms of that branch of service. And, you know, it wasn't all um, sunshine and rainbows and unicorn for them either. Uh, As soon as the war ended all 11,000 Yeomanettes were discharged whether they wanted out or not. And they were not given honorable discharges. They were just discharged. Like general Um, discharge. And they were not given, I believe, pensions, uh, you know, due their rank. And they had to agitate for those. And it took them decades to get them retroactively. And so, uh, as is so often the case, this was a matter of two steps forward, one step back. But... There was no going back those two steps. And in the Second World War, I don't believe there would have been wax or waves without the service of those 11,000 yeomanets in the First World War. Uh, Would you disagree, Jonathan? No,
3: I think that they were, uh, in every uh, true sense of the word, they were um, trailblazers uh, making an absolutely profound impact just by the act of wearing a uniform of the US Armed Forces and walking down the street.
0: Thank you, gentlemen. That was The Storyteller, Richard Rubin, and The Historian, Jonathan Bratton. The Storyteller and The Historian is now a full hour-long monthly podcast. Look for it on iTunes and Libsyn or follow the link in the podcast notes. Next, we're joined by Mike Schuster, former NPR correspondent and curator of the Great War Project blog. When thinking about World War I, people often focus on the Western Front of France and Belgium. But this world war was truly global. Today Mike's post is an update on the Middle East, where the Turks find themselves in a difficult situation. Welcome,
4: Mike. Thanks, Tao. Here's our headline. Crisis for the Turks in the Middle East as Middle East fronts multiply. Germans won control, British and Turks eye attack on Palestine. This is special to the Great War project. Now for an update on the war in the Middle East, where by this time, a century ago, war had spread to two fronts and is threatening to spread even further as the Ottoman-Turk forces occupying much of the Arab world are facing collapse. As of August 1917, writes historian Eugene Rogan, General Edmund Allenby, commander of British forces in the Middle East, was securely in command of a two-front campaign to defeat the Ottomans in Syria and Palestine. He turned his attention toward the Palestine front and prepared his army for a third attempt at Gaza. Two earlier attempts to seize Gaza from the Ottoman Turks had not been entirely successful. The British are also hailing the seizure of Aqaba, a port to the Red Sea. This took place just a month earlier, a century ago. It has shocked the Ottomans, and they are fearful the Arab and British victory may spread quickly to other parts of the Arabian Peninsula. Earlier, reports Rogan, the Ottoman minister of war, Enver Pasha, convened his army commanders in the northern Syrian city of Aleppo. They come from far and wide, from Mesopotamia, now Iraq, from Gallipoli in western Turkey, from the Turkish front in the Caucasus, and from Syria. Convening such an unusual gathering of Turkish commanders is not an everyday affair, observes Rogan. The Turkish supreme commander proposes a bold new initiative, It involves the Germans. He proposes to seize Baghdad from the British who had conquered that city earlier in 1917. The German general, Erich von Falkenhayn, would be in command. Falkenhayn had failed to seize Verdun from the French the previous year, but had led a victorious offensive in Romania. According to Rogan, the Germans commit $5 million in gold, an enormous sum at the time, to prevent Ottoman failure in the Middle East. Ottoman commanders do not welcome Enver's proposal. In fact, according to Rogan, the Ottoman commanders were stunned by the plan. Offensive operations to recover Baghdad seemed foolhardy when the empire was threatened by attack on so many other crucial fronts. And they were appalled by the prospect of coming under German command. Relations between Germans and Turks had grown strained during the course of the war. Soldiers' diaries captured the resentment among officers and the ranks alike at what they saw as German arrogance. One soldier warned that Turkey was becoming a German colony. Enver's proposal is to dispatch officers from Germany who had no knowledge of the Ottoman Empire or Turkish culture. But the Ottoman minister of war is not to be deterred. In the summer of 1917, he assembles a force that he intends to use against the British. But where? The British are putting together a force of their own that provides the perfect challenge for the combined Turkish and German troops. It appears the British are assembling an army to seize Palestine. And that's our story for this week, 100 years ago, in the Great War Project. Thank you, Mike. That was Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog.
0: For videos about World War I, our friends at the Great War Channel on YouTube have been producing great videos about the Great War since 2014. This week's new episodes include Despair Everywhere, the Great War Week 159. Another episode, War Weariness, The Great War Summary, Part 10. And a hardware piece, Italian Pistols of World War I. Follow the link in the podcast notes or search for The Great War on YouTube. And now, we're going to move forward in time to the present. Welcome to World War I Centennial News Now. This part of the show is not about history, but about the centennial of the war that changed the world and how it's being commemorated today. We're going to start with activities and events selected from the U.S. National World War I Centennial Events Register at ww one ccorg events, where we're compiling and recording World War I commemoration events from around the country. Our Pick of the Week is from the Smithsonian Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. The exhibit is called Uniformed Women in World War I and explores the active and sometimes overlooked role played by women throughout the war. Their roles were seminal, both as a part of the preparedness effort before 1917, as well as uniformed members of military and civilian organizations. Even if you can't make it to Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian offers a wonderfully detailed website featuring American women, their service, and their uniforms. Take a virtual visit with the link in the podcast notes. So, if you're involved with any World War I centennial events, you're invited to submit them to the National World War I Centennial Events Register. This not only promotes them to the World War I community of interest, but it also puts them into the permanent national U.S. archival record of the centennial. Go to one ccorg events, click on the big red button, and fill out the form. In our education segment, we wanted to let you know that the latest issue of the Education Newsletter is out. Understanding the Great War, Issue 8, is all about propaganda with lesson plans, source materials, links to YouTube videos, and other resources all designed to let educators create memorable learning experiences for their students. Follow the link in the podcast notes to the newsletter archive or to register to receive the publication. In our newest feature, Speaking World War I, where we explore today's words and phrases that were rooted in World War I, this week's selected word is thingamajig. Can you spell it? T-H-I-N-G, thing, U-uh, my, ma, J-I-G, jig, thingamajig. I like that word. Although it appears to have existed prior to the war, it became cemented in common use during the conflict. Soldiers were often confronted with many new objects and parts and things, and so the word thingamajig became a quick, easy way for soldiers to refer to those new bits and pieces around them. Other words for that thing I can't really recall what it's called includes the Canadian favorite, Hooshamakou. Read all about the many ways the soldiers referred to the things that they couldn't quite remember the names of by following the link in the podcast notes. Every week, we're profiling one of the many amazing projects submitted to our $200,000 matching grant giveaway to rescue ailing World War I memorials. The program's called 100 Cities, 100 Memorials. Last week, we profiled the Veterans of World War I of the USA monument in Phoenix, Arizona. This week, we're heading to Jackson, California to profile the Albert Harry Bode Gravesite Project. To tell us about it, we're joined by Ann Taylor, Regent of the Sierra Amador Chapter of the NSDAR, the National Society of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and Ruth Edmondson Johnson, Honorary Regent and National Lineage Research Chair, Southwest. Anne and Ruth, welcome.
5: Well, thank you. It's good to be here.
0: You know, what I love about the Hundred Cities, Hundred Memorials initiative is the range of projects it's drawn. Last week, Neil Urban was with us, and he works for the state of Arizona. Today, you're here from Jackson, California, a beautiful little hamlet located between Yosemite and Sacramento, and there's only 3,500 people in the town. Now, I've read your grant application, and you have a great story. Why don't you share it with us?
5: I'm sure I'd be glad to. First, I just would say that we, every November, our chapter goes out and flags all of the veterans that we can find in our local uh, Jackson Pioneer Cemetery, And one thing, at the far end, there's an old grave that has sunken down. It's got broken wooden boards over it. It has a diseased tree hanging over it. And every year I whisper to Albert Bode, I say, I'm so sorry about your grave, but we honor you and we're so proud of your service. And then we saw that there was a special event coming where we might be able to um, get some additional funding to help restore the grave. Starting to work on this project, working on putting together a proposal for the grave, we realized that we have other World War I veterans in there. So while we are making a big deal of restoring Albert's grave, we've also discovered that we have in our 900 and some grave graveyard, we already have found 51 World War I veterans. And so we we have 12 other possibles that we're working on. Um, Ruth, you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, We're looking for the family, uh, the descendants of Albert Henry Bode, because we would like to uh, have them um, attend the uh, ceremony when we uh, consecrate his grave again. And we um, looked through and we found a lot of information online about Harry. We found a picture of himself with his wife. And it's a lovely picture. And uh, his grave is, if you want to have a look yourself, it's on Find a Grave. A picture of the stone it's the uh, standard military issue but we found him in many different areas we have his wedding certificate and we have uh, found him in the 1940 the 1930 the 1920 1910 and um, we Ruth found has him gone back to the revolution <laughs> we found a revolutionary patriot for him mr. Campbell Christopher Campbell from Pennsylvania born in New Jersey so Harry is a descendant of a Revolutionary War veteran as well, and so we are looking forward to have to including the local groups. We have a lot of um, associations in the area, and very, very highly patriotic county here in Amador and Calaveras counties. We're looking forward to the conversations that we're going to be having as we locate the families of these 51 plus. World War I veterans, we're looking forward to the conversations with the various organizations that we'll be meeting with to search support for holding Centennial Commemoration Celebration at the Restored uh And we are hoping to have additional money to make a marker with the names of all um, World War I veterans. And so it's a, it's a big deal. The Centennial Organization has really inspired our chapter. We're thrilled to be part of it.
0: Well, you know, that was one of the core objectives when we created the program, to act as a catalyst for communities to rediscover their heritage. And it sounds like the project's doing exactly that in Jackson, California.
5: We're excited about it.
0: Thank you both.
5: Well, you're so welcome. And we um, applaud the work that you're doing. We're looking forward to the Friday show.
0: That was Ann Taylor and Ruth Edmondson Johnson from the Sierra Amador chapter of the NSDAR telling us about Albert Bode's military plaque and headstone restoration in Jackson, California. We're going to continue to profile the submitting teams and their projects on the show over the coming months. Learn more about the 100 Cities 100 Memorials program at ww one ccorg slash 100memorials or follow the link in the podcast notes. Welcome to our segment on updates from the states, starting with some exciting news from our friends in the Aloha State. Hawaii's governor, David Ige, has signed a letter pledging the state's support to Hawaii's World War I Centennial Task Force. This is a great group of people that have been working diligently over the past several years to present and expose Hawaii's role in the war that changed the world. Visit their website at www.w1cc.org slash hawaii, all lowercase, or follow the link in the podcast notes to read the story about this good news. Next, from the heart of Dixie, the state of Alabama, we're going to be joined by Jeff Jakeman, Professor of History Emeritus at Auburn University, to talk about a unique World War I aviator who was also quite an accomplished architect and artist, Penrose Vast Stout. Welcome, Jeff. Hello,
6: Tayo. It's good to be with you.
0: Jeff, what can you tell us about Penrose?
6: Well, Penrose Vast Stout, he was born in Montgomery in 1887. He was in the first class of architecture students at Auburn University, graduated in 1909, and by 1917, he was a practicing architect in Bronxville, New York, a, a suburb of New York City. Even before the United States declared war, he was attempting to join the Air Service. And he eventually was selected. Despite his advanced age, he was 30 years old when he applied, trained for almost a year, and by the end of August 1918, found himself as a member of the 27th Aero Squadron. Of That's one of four squadrons that made up the uh, well-known First Pursuit Group that included the likes of uh, Frank Luke and Eddie Rickenbacker, both uh, recipients of the Medal of Honor. His combat service didn't last that long. By the end of September, he had been shot down and uh, survived the attack and was in convalescent hospital when the armistice was declared in November. He was unlike many of his comrades. Uh, As I mentioned, he was quite advanced in age. Uh, By the time he was in combat, he was 31 years old, substantially older than most of the other pilots, whose average age was about 20. He was a southerner who had migrated to the north for economic opportunity, and he left a well-established career to volunteer for the air service. And most important, he was a talented artist who documented his service with letters and drawings his drawings uh, appear embedded in the text of his letters and he also compiled a fairly large sketchbook documenting his service his training french countryside it's quite an impressive piece of, of art and the family oh a year or two ago donated all of his papers to the Alabama Department of Archives and History where They're available online as part of the archives digital history collection.
0: So, Jeff, could you tell us about Vast Stout's exhibit at the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts?
6: Yes, absolutely. Uh, This was a collaborative effort between the Department of Archives and History and the Montgomery Museum of Fine Arts. The exhibit opened several weeks ago and will be running through September 10th. And it's, uh, for those of you that are close enough to get to Montgomery, uh, it's a wonderful introduction to uh, Stout's career as a combat aviator and his, his artwork, documenting the, uh, the time he served as a, uh, as a pilot. Two images, if I can speak about two of them that are, I think, they're all wonderful, but two are struck me. One, uh, he was a squadron mate of the famous ace, the balloon buster, Frank Luke. Several of his letters contain descriptions of Luke and missions he flew with Luke and there is a a portrait uh, of Luke, actually two portraits of Luke. One is embedded in the text of a letter, a very small little sketch, and then a larger, more detailed sketch of Frank Luke. The second image that strikes me is, is perhaps the most important sketch in the collection is a sketch of an aerial view of the opening artillery barrage before the onset of the Meuse-Argonne offensive. Many airmen who flew in that offensive have provided verbal descriptions of that horrific scene, but I don't know of any other visual depiction other than uh, Stout's depiction.
0: Jeff, thank you so much for joining us.
6: Ah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me.
0: That was Professor Jeff Jakeman telling us about aviator, architect, artist, and alumni of Auburn University, Penrose Vast Stout, and the exhibit Sketching the Skies, Penrose Vast Stout, which runs through September 10th at Montgomery's Museum of Fine Arts. You can learn more by following the link in the podcast notes. It's time for our articles and post segments with new posts from the website at www.cc.org. In the news section, you'll find an article that parallels current events with news from 99 years ago, and the subject is eclipses. In 1918 newspapers across America, tucked in among the reports about U.S. regiments fighting overseas and war bond propaganda were reports about a total eclipse casting the moon's shadow over the country. Just as in 2017, in 1918 the path of the eclipse started south of Japan went across the Pacific Ocean and then across the United States and just as in 2017 Americans were avidly interested in the amazing cosmic phenomena read more about it by visiting ww1cc.org/news or following the link in the podcast notes for our spotlight on the media section We're being joined by Susan Werby, an independent scholar and artist with a focus on the social and cultural history of World War I. She's the creator and executive producer of The Great War Theater Project, Messengers of a Bitter Truth, recently performed in Boston, New York, and Letchworth in the United Kingdom. Susan wrote about this project in a recent article in our Write blog, and she's here with us today to tell us more about it and about another project she's been working on. Welcome, Susan.
7: Thank you, Teo. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Susan, could you give our listeners an idea of what your theater project, Messengers of a Bitter Truth, is all about?
7: Absolutely. The Great War Theater Project was a multimedia theater piece that involved spoken word commissioned contemporary music and a video and the video comprised archival film footage paintings from world war one that were produced on the battlefront and on the home front and contemporary footage that we also filmed at that time it was a 25 minute piece and it was originally envisioned as a companion piece for high school students who were studying World War I, certainly in the United States. And we were very fortunate as it turned out to be able to perform it in Letchworth Garden City in the United Kingdom as well, with and for high school students. It started with my own interest in the writings of the First World War Paul Fussell in his seminal work, The Great War and Modern Memory, called World War I the most literary of all wars. And when I read that book back in the 1970s, I was so struck with that and so struck with the voices in the case of Fussell's book, the men's voices, the young men's voices, whether it was poetry, whether it was diaries, journals, letters, all of which came out of very personal experiences and really gave the reader the opportunity to connect with these men and what they had experienced in this cataclysmic event. And so as I continued to read and I continued to research, my interest grew and grew. And by a chance remark by the head of the dance department at the Boston Arts Academy, who said, oh, I'm so interested in the First World War, I'd love to choreograph a piece about it. And that started me off. And I did research both in the United Kingdom and here in the US, I looked at Primary source material, secondary source material. And one extraordinary experience was an experience I had at the Berg Collection of English and American Literature at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street in Manhattan. And I sat there in 2012 holding a letter that Isaac Rosenberg, British war poet who was killed in the First World War, a letter that he had written to Edward Marsh, the private secretary of Winston Churchill. And I was holding this letter that was almost 100 years old, and it was written when Isaac Rosenberg was in the trenches. And it was such a powerful experience for me to read about what this young man in his mid-twenties was going through. So to be able to bring that experience, again, back to young people who were studying the war, who were studying the, the meta, if you will, and the battles and the, the number of people involved, the horrific number of people killed, but to bring it down to an individual experience seemed to me to create a theater piece that would deepen and enrich the academic experiences that high school students were having was a real opportunity to look at this history through the lens of art. So it's theater, it's media, it's music, it's movement. And that was combined in this 25-minute piece.
0: Now, Susan, your newest project isn't theater. It's a music project called Letters That You Will Not Get. What inspired this one?
7: Again, I did so much research connected to the theater project, and it was really important to me to have both men and women's voices represented and men and women's experiences represented in the theater piece. And I discovered that over the past several decades, there's been a wealth of material that has come to the fore again, of women's poetry, women's paintings, women's writings, letters, journals, diaries. And I wanted to think about how to have women have their own voice. And I will say, much as I admired Paul Fussell's work, he made it very clear in his work that he thought it was a man's story for men to tell. And I would argue that it's a human story for human beings to to tell. I had the opportunity to put together with a theater director in New York, a libretto of women's writings, all from the First World War. Again, poetry, diaries, letters, journals. And again, as in the theater project from both sides of the conflict. So we have German women, we have American women, French women, British women.
0: So I know you haven't recorded the music for Letters You Will Not Get at this time, but you do have the libretto. Can you give us a sample?
7: Absolutely, I would be delighted to. One thing I would like to read, very short, two very short excerpts, and they what they do for me is really illustrate two very different responses to losing a son in the First World War. The first is Lady Violet Cecil, who was a British aristocrat whose only child, George, went missing in the first two months of the war. And this is an excerpt from a a book that her quote is contained in. Violet passed on news from George. He said that up to date, it had all been the most glorious fun. And then the next excerpt is from Kate Kolwitz, the visual artist, the German visual artist. Where are my children now? What is left to their mother? One boy to the right, one boy to the left, my right son and my left son, as they called themselves. Where are my children now? One dead and one so far away. What's so interesting to me, the juxtaposition of these two women, that Violet Cecil lost her only child in this war, and she memorialized him by giving to his high school a rifle range. And Kate Kolvitz memorialized her son and the trauma and loss of war by creating anti-war art, for the rest of her life, she was a sculptor, she did woodcuts, she did lithographs, works, which are extraordinarily powerful. So that's just a taste of two aspects of the libretto.
0: Thank you so much, Susan.
7: Kao, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: That was Susan Werby, an independent scholar and creative artist with a focus on the social and cultural history of World War I. Learn more about Susan's work and research by following the links in the podcast notes. And that brings us to The Buzz, the centennial of World War I this week in social media with Catherine Achey. Catherine, what do you have for us this week?
8: Hi, Teo. Today, I wanted to highlight a great new initiative from the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Service that we shared on Facebook this past week. They're commemorating the World War I centennial with new web pages highlighting the history of immigration and naturalization and their impact on the U.S. during the war. America entered the war during a swell of immigration. Between 1901 and 1920, some 14.5 million immigrants arrived on our shores. As with every wave of immigration, some Americans welcomed the new immigrants and some called for increased restrictions. Foreign-born soldiers composed over 18% of the U.S. Army during World War I. Almost one in five draftees was born overseas. In response to calls for immigration restriction and to flaring ethnic and cultural tensions, many recent immigrants volunteered to serve to demonstrate their patriotism for their new country. Several units became renowned for their many immigrant members— The 77th Infantry Division, which was nicknamed the Melting Pot Division, was one unit famed for its diversity. Their shoulder patch bears, to this day, the Statue of Liberty in gold on a field of blue. Read more about the service of immigrants and foreign-born Americans in World War I and the role of the USCIS during the conflict by following the links in the podcast notes. That's it this week from The Buzz.
0: Thank you, Catherine. And that's also it for World War I Centennial News for this week. In closing, we want to thank our guests. R.G. Head, author and historian, giving us a retrospective on the war in the sky. The storyteller and the historian, Richard Rubin and Jonathan Bratton, talking to us about the Naval Reserve Act. Mike Schuster from the Great War Project blog, highlighting the situation in the Middle East 100 years ago. Ann Taylor and Ruth Edmondson Johnson from the 100 Cities, 100 Memorials Project in Jackson, California. Jeff Jakeman, Professor Emeritus from Auburn University, talking to us about aviator, architect, and artist Penrose Vastout. Susan Werby, independent scholar and artist, telling us about her projects highlighting the voice of the people, both men and women, during the war. Catherine Akey, the Commission's social media director and also the line producer for the show. And I'm Teo Mayer, your host. The U.S. World War I Centennial Commission was created by Congress to honor, commemorate, and educate about World War I. Our programs are to inspire a national conversation and awareness about World War I. World War I Centennial News is a part of that. We're bringing the lessons of 100 years ago into today's classrooms. We're helping to restore World War I memorials in communities of all sizes across the country. And of course, we're building America's National World War I Memorial in Washington, D.C. If you like the work that we're doing, please support it with a tax-deductible donation at ww one ccorg donate, all lowercase. Or if you're on a smartphone, text the word WW1 to 41444. That's the letters WW and the number 1. Text it to 41444. You can donate any amount. And, of course, any amount is appreciated. We want to thank the Commission's founding sponsor, the Pritzker Military Museum and Library, for their support. The podcast can be found on our website at www.cc.org ccorg cn, on iTunes and Google Play at www.centennialnews. Our Twitter and Instagram handles are both at www.1cc, and we're on Facebook at www.ccentennial. Thanks for joining us. And don't forget to share the stories that you're hearing here with someone about the war that changed the world.
5: This country's been dead, but they'll find us prepared. And to try and gain our aim, not a penny will be spared. We are a friendly nation, and we're always looking for peace. And with waited, hoping that this war will be The enemy across the sea won't take our good advice So now it's up to every man to make some sacrifice What kind of an American are you? It's time to show what you intend to do Will you think that they are right? Or will you stand behind your land and fight with all your life? What kind of an American are you? That's the question you have to answer to. If the starfine, the sun, don't make you stand and cheer, then what are you doing over here?
0: Hey, Halsey, could you pass me that thing thingamajig? Thanks.